When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. This episode is about the Star Trek show Strange New Worlds, which just finished its first season on Paramount+. We will be giving away minor spoilers in discussing the show. When Strange New Worlds first started back in May, I was excited to watch it. Sat down on the couch with my wife, and as the opening credits were rolling by, I suddenly yelled, Bill! And my wife said, who's Bill? And before I could explain, I said, Henry! And she said, who's Henry? Henry, Alonzo Myers, and Bill Walkoff are writers and producers on Strange New Worlds. Henry is actually one of the showrunners. The three of us were film majors together at Wesleyan University, and we moved to Los Angeles around the same time in the mid-90s. While I had kept up with their careers, I did not know they were working on the show. I had so many questions for them, and I was glad that they were able to talk with me. But first, a little background on Strange New Worlds. The synopsis is simple. It's the story of the Enterprise before Captain Kirk. But the backstory is a little bit more complicated, and it goes all the way back to 1964, the pilot of Star Trek, which was called The Cage. Check the circuit. All operating, sir. Can't be the screen, then. Spock was there, but he was not as stoic as he would later be. The captain was named Pike. He was not played by William Shatner. His first officer was a woman called Number One. And they could still be alive, even after 18 years. If they survived the crash. We aren't going to go, to be certain. Not without any indication of survivors, no. The network was not happy with the pilot. Changes were made, and the cage was never aired in the original run of the series. But rather than pretend the pilot never happened, Gene Roddenberry worked Captain Pike and Number One into the lore and canon of Star Trek. And in 2019, the characters appeared in the second season of the show Star Trek Discovery, which took place 10 years before the original series. Spock was played by Ethan Peck, Pike was played by Anson Mount, and Number One was played by Rebecca Romaine. Welcome home, Captain. Good to be back. Wish we were under better circumstances. Don't we all? Star Trek fans loved seeing these versions of the characters so much, they lobbied for them to have their own spin-off series. And that is how Strange New Worlds was born. Personally, I think the show looks great. I mean, I love the way they capture the essence of the 1960s sets and costumes while updating them with modern-day materials and special effects. And unlike a lot of sci-fi shows these days, 
Strange New Worlds is not one long serialized story. It's episodic, like the old Star Trek. Critics have praised the show for being a throwback, and they've actually compared it to what's called prestige TV shows, shows that are supposed to be superior in quality because they're serialized. But those shows can also sometimes feel bloated or pretentious or difficult to follow. Bill and Henry are sympathetic to that point of view. You'll hear Henry first and then Bill. I I find a lot of um, current prestige TV to TV to be frustrating. And I think, and I don't know if it's, look, this is a, I'm a veteran episodic TV guy. I've been doing this for over 20 years and I really like the way the television tells stories. And I get very frustrated when people say things like, oh, we're trying to do a 10 hour movie or a six hour movie. And like, I I, want to raise my hand and say, you know, if you went to a movie and it was 10 hours long, you'd walk out. So like what we're doing is a we're doing a one hour show and trying to create like a, a morsel. You remember like in, in Willy Wonka, they had the uh, the gum that would present you with a full meal, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, uh, from uh, appetizer to dessert. Uh, you know, that's what we try to do within an hour so that you tell a character story that feels like it's self-contained. But also, you know, in the classic mode of television you know, going back to uh, like Hill Street Blues, we try to arc character stories so that our our people, you know, learn something or experience something one week and they're not the same person the next week. The The show ends up being more nimble. You can tell more interesting, broad-based science fiction stories because we are only telling short ones. Well, one thing I think is interesting is like, when you think about the film program that the three of us were in, um, it was like very focused on genre. Like there were so many classes just breaking down what a genre was. And like one thing I think is interesting about the show is how many episodes feel like their own little sort of self-contained genres. Like you'll have like a rom-com episode and then there's like the sci-fi horror episode and there's like a siege episode and then (laughs) there's like a pirate episode. Like, do you feel like the education that we all got like helped you be more nimble and and able to sort of quickly pick up what makes a genre? Absolutely. I mean, it's the the great thing about the episodic format is that you can be, you can do exactly as you're saying, experiment with genre and embrace it fully. And as we all went to the same film school, like we're aware of the limits uh, and uh, the, the, the rails within each, each genre to, inhabit that fully with within each episode to really do a pirate episode and to you know really do a storybook episode a fantasy episode it, but also have it still be a star trek episode at the same time and that that it's it's having that balance that that power to embrace the genre but the the balance to still be a, a um what you would recognize as a star trek episode at the end of it uh that i think make, makes it fun to be a part of and, and write and also uh, as an audience member experience. Hmm. So, um, Henry, I read I read an interview that you did where you said that early on when you were developing the show, you had a lot of conversations and trying to figure out, like, how is Pike different than Kirk? Because, I mean, I guess on many levels you could have written them or you could have written him as like a, a Kirk like captain. But like, I'm really curious, what were those conversations like? And how did you eventually land on the idea that Pike really likes to cook? (laughs) Because (laughs) he's he's cooking a lot in the show. I do like to cook. That was definitely in the back of my head. But but a a lot of it actually just came out of um, we were trying to figure out what was his style of command. And uh, we were actually talking specifically about 
his quarters and what his set should look like and how we would do scenes in it. And like um, in previous Star Treks, they all the captains sort of have their own obsessions. Janeway loves coffee. It's not really a Picard thing, but there's always a there's a poker game on Next Generation. Uh, and we were sort of trying to figure out what what would represent the way that Pike leads. I'm a baker and there's a guy who I admire a lot named Chad Robertson who created this um, bakery tartine in San Francisco. And I fall back on his uh, bread cookbooks a lot. And there's a thing in his cookbook where he talks about how to make uh, fava beans, which are a real pain in the butt to, to, uh, to peel. And his method for doing it is you open a bottle of wine and you bring a bunch of people around the table and you say, Hey, help, help me, you know, peel these fava beans. It's a, it's a way of having a dinner party that, involves everyone and forces everyone to kind of cook and join in and it creates conversation. Uh, and so we had this notion that, that maybe this is how he approaches command. He's got a, a, a sort of central table that everyone sort of sits around. He likes to bring in people from lots of different areas of the ship and find out what's going on. Um, he's a real listener. Um, and so the idea uh, that, that he, he cooks more like a conductor you know, he uh, he he cooks at the center and kind of keeps a, 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 an eye on how everyone's going. But he sort of pulls people in and has them, you know, try different things and work to their strengths. Uh, it was really just a metaphor for how he leads in a very different way from Kirk, who's a little more of a maverick at the center of things. He's the one who has the crazy plan. Everyone's a little surprised at him. You know what I mean? He's a more of a central hero. And Pike is a little more of a... Um, someone who coordinates between people, someone who tries to see the strengths of the folks uh, who work with him. My assistant producer, Stephanie, actually has a theory that Pike's hair is like a mood ring, <laughs> depending <laughs> on its height. <laughs> Anson has really amazing hair. Well, I, I happened to be on set one of the days when, one, when somebody had done a meme, uh, a pair, um, an Anson mount in the Paramount logo with, with his hair as tall as the mountain. And he had clearly seen it. And we were shooting one of his scenes and this is a credit to Anson, who's got a great sense of humor about himself. And he said, so I'm going to be over here, but my hair's mark is going to be way over there. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Bill, actually, I wanted to ask you about an episode that you co-wrote, which was called um, Ghosts of Illyria. And I mean, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but uh, in that episode, we learned that number one, who has a name now, actually, it's Una. We learned that Una is originally from uh, this planet of uh, genetically modified people who are discriminated against by other humans. And at one point, she's talking to Pike about her identity, and he says, don't worry, you're one of the good ones, which makes her cringe. What if I hadn't saved all those lives? Would the captain feel the same? What would he do if I wasn't a hero? One of the good ones. When will it be enough to just be an Illyrian? I thought that was a really interesting moment, especially to have Pike say you're one of the good ones, because I mean, we've already established that he's really sensitive and inclusive. And I was wondering if you could talk about that scene. Part of that came from, and I, I want to uh, also credit Akiva Goldsman, who was uh, who guided us uh, very heavily in that episode, and um, my co-writer on that episode, Akela Cooper. That came from a uh, a desire to to present the Federation as an imperfect place that that has good ideals, and let's have that come out through our character, through through Pike, uh, who is somebody who is well intentioned, who might not necessarily 
have the experience to um, to, to understand how his the his, his view of of a marginalized group would affect that marginalized group, and, and we wanted to give him um, a little bit of room for uh, evolution. He's somebody who needs a little bit of evolution, as as the uh, um, Federation does. This was a good uh, character to to play that out with, and what better relationship to have that come to a head with than one of Una's closest friends in the Federation who is only just aware that she is part of a marginalized group. Yeah, there was also another really interesting moment in terms of current day politics. It was actually in the first episode. There's a moment where Pike is explaining the history of the Federation to these aliens that are about to go to war with each other. And, you know, according to Star Trek lore, this was, of course, set up in the 1960s, that in the 1990s, there was going to be a third world war that was sort of fought over eugenics. But the timelines, you know, been shifted as, of course, Star Trek has kept going into the 21st century. But when Pike is telling the story of how the Federation rose up from the ashes, he shows real footage of Trump protesters in 2020 and the insurrection at the Capitol. And that leads up to like L.A., New York and D.C. we see being wiped out by nuclear weapons, which is a terrifying sequence. Our conflict also started with a fight for freedoms. We called it the Second Civil War, then the Eugenics War, and finally just World War Three. This was our last day, the day the Earth we knew ceased to exist. So I was really curious, why did you decide to include real footage of recent politics in that scene? Star Trek has never shied away from politics. And what we were trying to say, which I think is actually not as controversial as I think I'm sure people in some parts of the media would like to to believe, is that the path towards conflict that we were we are on now will head in this direction. I mean, the whole, the whole point of that episode is to say, hey, this metaphorical thing that happens in the science fiction show actually has relevance to the world that we live in. Just as a, as a context thing, in that episode, Pike is reaching out to a society that is on the verge of like destroying itself. And he says, look, our society did destroy itself. And to make it feel relevant to people of today, we didn't want to say, oh, we fictionally destroyed ourselves. We wanted to kind of tie together the, you know, because in canon, the eugenics wars did happen in the 1990s. And and the goal was to say, hey, yes, okay, so maybe those didn't happen in the 90s. But the things that did happen are on a path that lead to the thing that we are saying will happen. Another big challenge in running the show is figuring out how to tell new and interesting stories about characters like Spock. Well, we already know what's going to happen to him for the rest of his life. We'll discuss how they made the fate of legacy characters feel a little less certain after the break. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Spock is not the only character from the original series to appear in Strange New Worlds. One of the other major characters they brought back is Uhura. In the 1960s, she was a groundbreaking character, but... Uhura never had the same kind of character development as Spock. That has changed in Strange New Worlds. 
where Ahura is a young cadet fresh out of the academy, and she's really not sure yet what her place is going to be in Starfleet. You know, the Enterprise only gets a handful of cadets a year from Starfleet. You gotta be pretty impressive to make the cut. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I hear you speak 12 languages. Uh, 37. Okay, wow. Uh, in Kenya, we have 22 native languages. I found early that if I wanted to be understood, it's best to communicate in someone's own tongue. So I learned them. Easy as that. For me, sir, yes. I asked Bill and Henry if there was a lot of discussion around how to flesh out her character, give her more of a backstory. And Bill said... Many long discussions. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> it was very interesting because we talked a lot about... Um, we talked a lot about what was there in the past and that performance, uh, you know, Nichelle Nichols' performance is iconic and people, you know, rightly point to it. It was... It was uh, incredibly important for the history of television. It was incredibly important on the show. Um, but there was a there were a lot of areas that were left unexplored. We really wanted to tell the story of a, a younger character, like an ensign, someone who was just coming on to the Enterprise. Like the first episode is really a Pike episode. And so with the second episode, we really wanted to kind of come out of the gate and tell A, a very different story, and B, kind of show the types of stories that we were going to do on the show. So we thought it might be an interesting idea to really focus on her point of view. And because she is young, she's a, you know, 21, 22, not the Uhura that we know. She's a, she's an ensign. We really wanted to kind of present her as a character, present her as a point of view character. Cause like her view of the enterprise is going to be very different from everyone else. On top of that, we were searching for an interesting way to kind of uh, surprise people with her point of view about Starfleet. Um, and one of our, our then writer's assistant who uh, became a writer on the show in season two, Onitra Johnson, and also wrote um, uh, episode, co-wrote episode eight this season. Uh, she uh, spent a lot of time in the Air Force uh, and her family were all in the Air Force and she had this sort of interesting military experience and, it, and her experience was, it was complicated. And she had sort of mixed feelings about having spent time in the service. And we spent a lot of time talking about her specific experience and how that might be an interesting experience to kind of channel through Uhura. So we had this idea that like, what if she's ambivalent about what she did, about, do, about choosing to join Starfleet, that there's a complicating factor in her life that ultimately led to her doing this thing, to making what was sort of an impulsive decision, uh, you know, because many people join Starfleet with a dream, but, but also many people join Starfleet to find themselves uh, or because they're running away from something. And so uh, for us, it was sort of important to give this young woman some runway, like a, 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 a place to go in terms of, you know, she, she can't be fully formed yet because then there's no journey for this character. Um, because I think the, the challenge with doing legacy characters is that people come in and say, well, they're already fully formed. I know who they are. I know who they're going to be. So I'm not interested in what they were in the past. And the, the thing that I always remember is they don't know who they're going to be. If they don't know, then everything is a surprise to them. So let's approach her like that. Well, that actually brings me to Spock. Cause I mean, you know, I mean, how do you tell stories about Spock when we, we know what happens to him and you picked up on the character of T'Pring, who is Spock's fiance in only one episode of the original series, which was called a mock time. 
And I, it's obviously not much of a spoiler to say that they didn't get married in the original series. Like Spock does not have a wife for the rest of the show and all this in all the Star Trek movies. But so much of the storyline in Strange New Worlds is about their engagement and them like working out the kinks in their relationship. A shared acceptance of mutual sacrifice is crucial to a successful relationship. Yes, that is indisputable. I am concerned that your time in Starfleet may be causing you to behave in a manner so human. We may ultimately find ourselves incompatible. Perhaps you should go prepare for your important work. And the actors have such great chemistry together. It's almost like you're actually rooting for them. Uh, and yet, you know, there's going to be a really long engagement because, I mean, a muck time, you know, the episode she's in, in the original series doesn't happen for like another decade in their world. So, um, Henry, I'm curious, because like, I know you wrote one of the Spock to Pring episodes. Why was the decision made to make to Pring a big part of Spock's entire storyline? I mean, it all kind of started from uh, Akiva and Alex and Jenny putting to Pring in the pilot. Uh, and they're clearly in a kind of a workable, nice part of the relationship. And I, I re we spent a lot of time trying to find an actor to play to Pring who was appealing and interesting and that they had, you know, so that that, that she and um, Ethan had chemistry uh, because we knew that we'd want to bring her back. I, I, you know, I, I, I've done a lot of work with, uh, with comedy and rom-com in particular. That's a tone that has not been explored in Star Trek in probably, you know, 20 years. It's harder to do that kind of thing if you're not doing episodic shows. And, you know, I think the easy thing to do would be just to like do one episode that shows exactly how they're troubled and then they're going to end up at a muck time. But like, how boring is that? <laughs> like, what if, uh, what if their relationship is more interesting and promising and that T'Pring is actually a formidable and interesting person? And so we started digging in with the room in ways in which Tupring could be a, a, like a legitimate fun character to have around. None of the things that people expect to happen have to happen tomorrow. You know, relationships are long and many things happen in them. And also, also I think the original series sets up such a great dynamic between the two of them in that it's a very long engagement there. You know, they, they were placed together by by their parents and Spock is half human and she's fully Vulcan. And uh, so the original series sets all of these things up, but doesn't, uh, it was only three seasons and didn't follow through on that. And and we get the uh, the chance to really play with that great uh, setup. I, I think I, I, I could speak on behalf of the other writers that the, it's really exciting to get to, uh, to get to explore that dynamic uh, more fully. And Henry and Robin's episode is, is a prime example of, of that, that, that Spock uh, to bring dynamic. I was actually going to ask you about that. Well, first of all, Henry, you wrote, I think, maybe one of the funniest lines in the history of Star Trek. Hijinks are the most logical course of action. <laughs> but um, what is it What is it like to write for them as a couple, as two Vulcans? Because you, you actually have them accidentally switch bodies during a Vulcan mind meld. Like, how, as a writer, could you even tell them apart? You guys did a body swap, like, you, like your minds are in each other's... That is correct. I am Spock. And I am Tukring. Now that you know, you can likely tell the very clear differences in our mannerisms. Yeah, totally. I, having worked on a number of body switching episodes, I, I was familiar with a lot of the problems and tropes that you run into when doing it. So the, the challenge was to find a way for their voices to be very specific and distinctive. The, the truth is that our Vulcans are not really the same as the Vulcans of, of 
19, you know, the 1960s. And, and the main reason is that back then Spock was sort of the alien. He's the other, he's not as much a point of view character. And we were presenting him very much. I mean, that's a very much a Spock episode. We present him as an emo- an emotional way in. Like he's the character who's, emotional point of view we understand which sounds funny because he's a vulcan and vulcans have emotions that they suppress but this is a, a as a modern audience like spock is the person whose emotions that we are tracking in that episode there's a moment where he comes back to his uh, he's he's been kept late at work and he comes back to his quarters and topring is very you know she's super logical but it's pretty clear that she's pissed at him that he did not uh, come back in time uh, and then she exits and he looks over and sees this like lovely meal she's made and he just shuts his eyes. And it's he's not being emotional, but all the emotions are there. And it's something that I think, you know, the truth is that it's a very human moment. And we all can connect with it. Yeah. So Spock is half human. And in the original series, they really spent all this time with him being very, I am a Vulcan. You know, I, I'm um, half Jewish. My my parents are from different uh, religions. Uh, you know, and I know a lot of people who come from different uh, mixed backgrounds. And, you know, one of the things that you find, I think, when you when you're coming from mixed background is that, you know, you tend to have an interest in go through phases where you're interested in different sides of your family. And so we've seen a lot of Vulcan Spock, but we hadn't seen a lot of like, what if Spock went through a human phase? What if Spock went through a phase that he's different? And then we have a little bit of canon that we were sort of going back to, which is in the original pilot of the of the cage. They have what we sometimes refer to in the room as Smiley Spock, which is uh, they show Spock on uh, Talos 4, uh, I believe, you know, looking at these sort of... Uh, the flowers. Yeah, these talking flowers and like having this big smile on his face, just not a Spock we've ever seen before. And so we had some notion that, all right, well, there's a there's there's some canon to explore some ideas about what this Spock is going to, you know, could, could be going through uh, as a person of mixed parentage who you know, uh, uh, has a lot of different things that he's still yet to figure out. Yeah. Well, actually, speaking of canon and and um, pushing boundaries, in the original series, the Gorn was like a guy in a lizard suit, and it became kind of a pop culture joke. Like even William Shatner did a did a commercial with a guy in a Gorn costume. Oh, not again! But you brought back the Gorn, and you made them terrifying with like modern special effects. We got one in the shoot. So I was I was wondering like did somebody come in with an with like an agenda meaning like we are rehabilitating the Gorn or did you just start brainstorming and say ah you know who could be like the Borg for this crew and then like you eventually landed on the Gorn. I have to I have to give Akiva credit here cuz Akiva who has been with the new Star Trek universe for uh you know since its inception pretty much has always kind of kept an eye on the Gorn. Like he's been a huge fan of the Gorn the challenge of the Gorn is I don't think modern audiences who are very sophisticated and expect a certain level of effects and verisimilitude would accept a dude in a rubber suit. So understanding that, you really have an expensive proposition. You have to find a way to reinvent them for modern audiences uh, because I don't think you could just do it the way that they did do it. I guess you could treat them with kid gloves uh, or you could just say, all right, what's What's the Gorn about? What's the metaphor that we are trying to do with the Gorn that's different? And so Akiva had this idea that uh, there's a truism in Star Trek, which is that if we just come to an understanding with other 
species with other aliens. We will eventually find something that we can connect with. Uh, and the idea that he had was, what if the Gorn is that is the species we can't do that? What if the Gorn are just monsters? Um, and that kind of leaves us room to tell another type of science fiction story. That's that's the, that's the first thing that you said to me when I was hired onto the show was we're we're doing the Gorn and we're going to reapproach the Gorn, and I said yes because the Gorn was probably one of the key draws for me to the original series when I was six seven years old, even though it's a dude in a in a rubber suit, I was fascinated by that uh by that by that dude. And I was I was kind of terrified by him and drawn into it and I I, I for for me that had a certain and I again I was I was like probably 6 or 7 but it had verisimilitude. Uh I did believe, you know, that that Kirk was up against this this unstoppable being uh in in the desert. Uh so the ch- uh the chance to reapproach that uh, race as a uh, a potential Trek villain um Yes, Cannon, you know, uh, says that they were in this kind of weird caveman suit with a sash on them and that that we didn't know anything about them. But what does that really mean? Uh, so and, and it gave gave us a chance to uh, look at Cannon from a different perspective. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me is um, one of the biggest criticisms right now about Star Wars to bring up the other big franchise with Star in the title uh, is that they're being too cautious. Like people complain that they're just filling in like tiny gaps between canon and they're, there's, um, they're not taking enough chances. But you guys are being like really loose and free, you know, with, with canon. And, um, and you're having, it seems like you're just like having a lot of fun. Like, do you not feel that kind of pressure or are you just really good at hiding it? I think we feel the, I think we feel the pressure. Uh, but I, I, I think you have to adhere to the the spirit of canon and make our best effort to not undo what what has been a reality for fans for 40 50 years. We have very hearty discussions about canon and and what we, you know, can and can't do, but I think everybody has their eye everybody, even the, you know, people that you would call our canon police that are on staff all all realize we don't that, call you know, them police. <laughs> <laughs> we call them canon experts. Canon experts. Yeah. Maybe maybe they don't in, call them in, canon police. In, in no. my head canon, they're canon police. No. Right. <laughs> Everybody wants to tell a great story and wants to tell new stories in the, in this uh, universe, and I think looks at at what's happened before, and sometimes there's a new perspective to look at uh, canon in a way that you hadn't looked at before. That some people might see as breaking canon, but really isn't. It's just looking at it from a completely new new standpoint in order to tell tell deeper stories. Uh, look, I, I I can't speak to I mean look, I, I'm I'm a Star Wars fan as well as a Star Trek fan. I can't speak to the challenges that they must go through uh, in trying to make those shows. But my philosophy has always been like if someone hands you a Star Trek show, you can't act as if you're going to break it. Uh, because if you're too afraid to break it that you're going to break it, you're never going to tell interesting stories. Um, and so, you know, my, my feeling is like you, you sort of have to find ways to push the boundaries of it, uh, because otherwise, why are you doing it? Gene Roddenberry wasn't afraid of breaking it because and, and, and he wanted to use Star Trek to tell interesting, relevant science fiction stories that related to the world that we live in today. Uh, and if we're not doing that, why are we doing Star Trek? It's not. It's not all fan service. It's like a. It's supposed to be a living thing that has value to the world. I think that's part of being a steward, a good steward of the thing. 
So far, their stewardship has gotten a lot of high marks from the fans. And I hope that encourages writers in other well-established franchises to be more playful with the characters, to swing for the fences, or, you know, reach for the stars. That is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Henry Alonzo Myers and Bill Walkoff. My assistant producer is Stephanie Billman. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you really like Imaginary Worlds, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts or a shout out on social media. That always helps people discover the show. The best way to support the podcast is to donate on Patreon. At different levels, you can get either free Imaginary World stickers, a mug, a t-shirt, and a link to a Dropbox account, which has the full-length interviews of every guest in every episode. And in the full-length interview for this episode, I talked with Bill and Henry about plot twists that happened late in the season, and those conversations were so full of spoilers that I couldn't even include them in this episode. You can learn more at the show's website, imaginaryworldspodcast.org. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.